From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making her way to the microphone from Orland Park, Illinois, and currently residing in Frankfurt, Illinois. She is the president and owner of LDK Advisory Services. Please welcome Anita Nielsen. Dang, that's some talent you have there, friend. She is Anita Nielsen, founder, owner, president of LDK Advisory Services. What is that? Well, if you're a senior sales or sales enablement leader and you're tired of being sold sales effectiveness solutions that don't fit your organization or actually help you meet your own professional goals, then LDK Advisory partners with you to help break out of that cycle. It is all about helping your team become better at sales effectiveness based on your team's unique culture, business needs, tactical challenges, and professional objectives. Today, Anita is here to join me on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, to discuss 400-level discovery questions. Anita, welcome to the show. Why is this on your mind? Thank you, thank you. Why is this important to you? I feel like it's always on my mind, but now almost more than ever, I think it's so important that we ask the right questions to get into the mindset of the prospect or customer that you're working with. Now, we have to know now more than ever where they're at just because there's so much going on in order to be able to have a, a productive conversation and create trust in a, in a different way. Uh, it's funny that you went to the now more than ever phrase because I think it's like, oh my these. God, it's everywhere. As soon as I said it, as soon as I said it, I was like, gosh darn it. I finally stopped saying the next normal or the new normal that I stopped months ago. But the now, I mean, it is now more than ever. That's the problem. It, it really like, you know, where it's always, discovery's always been something that's super important. Right now, it is not optional. <laughs> you have to do it. It's not optional. You have to be good at it. Otherwise, just you will not get what you need. I was considering the other day putting together a montage of brands using now more than ever and like the ridiculous cases. And I think I found the most ridiculous use case. I was reviewing a client's call and the company they were demoing was like an ammunition supply company. And the website was like, was like in these trying times now more than ever, you need to stay protected. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. In times of great uncertainty um, is the other one that I see everywhere. And it's like, it's hard because that's just the vernacular. That's what I would say, but everyone and their mother is saying it now. So you kind of just got to back off a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to talk all about this whole concept of the 400 level discovery questions. Uh, Before we do that, let's learn a little bit more about you and let's take it back to the time of before less than ever (laughs) Uh, you got a college degree in psychology which is really like it's it's such an important part of sales but i'm curious when you were getting that degree did you have on your mind entering the sales profession not not at all i mean at that time there was no let me major in sales right or let me take entrepreneurship classes i didn't actually funny thing after i graduated for the longest time, I would find myself saying, God, I, who do I call for a refund on this college degree? Because at that point, I didn't understand how important the fact that I'd learned psychology was. It took me to later. And then one day I was just like, whoa, what I've learned there is what has gotten me to where I'm at. And then I started to focus in on it a little bit more. Well, at the time, did you say to yourself like, oh, well, I'm getting this degree for X reason? Or are you just like, well, I'm in, I'm in college. I got to pick something. No, so good story. So I was pre-med. And I was kind of like, you know, I was just doing it. I'd always told myself that's what I wanted to do. 
very silly considering blood makes me queasy and just the idea of illness and people breaks my heart. So it took me until about junior year after taking a couple of few MCATs that <laughs> me. And I was doing Wait, so you took the MCATs? I took like, You I went to remember, that extent. You know I'm trying to remember. I, I'm pretty sure I took the real one, but I, I know I took a ton of practice. I took a class. I remember taking the Princeton Review or whatever, Kaplan, whatever yeah, it was at that yeah. in those old days. Yeah. And so then I was just like, this is not for me. So it took me you know, a good six months to get the nerve to tell my parents, hey, by the way, not doing that. And I had a lot of courses in psychology just because they were interesting. And so at that point, it was like, all right, I better just do psychology and then minor in communications, which is what I had the bulk of classes in. So I could graduate a little bit earlier. Did you, I guess, like today, your sales trainer, you're a leading voice in sales. Growing up, even before, you know, your psychology degree, do you recall ever having any like random little side job or thing you just like started even in like the house as like a fake sales thing? Anything that would speak to sales? I, we would play like normal people would play house. I would play some sort of sales. Like I would just be like, okay, well, you know, I think that you should do this or I think you should buy this. It would be something stupid from my toy box. And I don't know why I would do that. Remember it for a long time. But then one day I was like, that was, that's what I did. I used to do that. Didn't think of it, but I worked in retail throughout high school. And so I found that, and retail is hard. It's not easy. And then, you know, in the old days, I don't know what they do now, but they had numbers and you had quotas, you had targets, you had to meet. Um, and I was always kicking butt at it. And so I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. But I didn't take it seriously. I didn't look at it as sales. I looked at it as this is my high school job, you know, helping me pay for gas and stuff. Right. So, you know, that's kind of, um, but then it evolved. And even after I got done with psychology degree, I wanted to go to journalism school. And so Northwestern Medill is here. So I was like, all right, that's what I'll do. And then I started, I took a temp job, which reminded me how much I love sales. And so then that just kind of veered me off track, didn't end up going to journalism school, didn't go back to get my MBA for a few years, because at that point I was just earning and I was loving what I was doing and it was sales. And did that happen much to the dismay of your family? Much to the dismay of my family <laughs> until literally five, six years ago. I mean, I'm telling you, this was like the moment of my life. My dad's like, you know, I like the way that you did it. And I'm like, is someone punking me right now? Because that is not my first generation immigrant <laughs> dad telling me that he's okay with this. But he made a good point. And that's the most acknowledgement you get from an Indian father. <laughs> and that's 100% true. And well, and he did give me, he gave me a little bit more. I, I think he probably felt like I earned it after, you know, 30 sure. some odd years. And uh, he said, you know, because you chose this way, you have, you know, you live your life the way you want to, you have the flexibility, you know, you don't have, you don't have a night nurse taking care of your babies. Nothing is wrong with that, but that was the path I would have had. And it just ended up, it ended up being a lot easier just in terms of my life balance. And it, you know, I like to say it took him that long to realize it, but I knew it, but I really didn't. It was by accident, honestly, but yeah. that was a big deal. Well, let's go back for a second. What was the retail job that you had in high school? Oh gosh. So I worked at one of like a clothing store in the mall. Um, what was it called? It was called Brooks. And then I worked at like one of the limit express companies. I worked at Gap and then I landed in the body shop. That's probably where I stayed the longest. Uh -huh. I actually stayed there even when I was in college, just because I was all into this, you know, don't test on animals and being ethical in terms of creating these products. So I stuck with that almost until, um, gosh, it was a long time. Even when I had my full-time sales job, I was still doing that sometimes because it was fun for me. And I love the discounts. So it was kind of a, it was fun. And that's how sad is that? Like you have a full-time job, you could totally live on that. It's sad and it's great. I love that. I love to just be able to sit there and meet people and sell. And it was just something I struggled to give it up. Actually, it was fun for me. What's something unexpected that you learned or realized working retail that no one would know otherwise who's never worked retail? Well, first of all, the phenomenon of mall rats, it's the most annoying thing in the entire world, like these kids running around. And I mean, you have to have skills to be able to get them out of your store. So that was one thing I didn't know I would have. But, um, you know, of course, later when I had children, the skills yeah, worked, handy, really well. <laughs> worked really well. So that's one. And I think one of the things that you don't understand when you're in retail, because what you're doing is essentially transactions, right? And you're having these quick interactions and you're selling and you're moving people out of the store. The thing is with retail, you can do that. And that's absolutely part of it. But when you do it well, those people come back. And so the fact that there were so many, I had like a, a book of people that were my clients that were coming in there. And that was something that I didn't see. How, and that was at the body shop. Of course, this wasn't a gap or others. And that was fascinating to me. And, you know, like I said, now looking back, I can see all these things. And it was because I engaged with them at a personal level, like at an emotional level. And I had one person at one point just start crying in the store. And I was like, 
wow. And that's amazing to me. Of course, it was for makeup and she was having some insecurities, but I was able to help talk her through that. And that to me, this is before the psych degree now, this is before any of that happened. That was meaningful because, you know, then she was my customer and she never stopped being my customer. That's an interesting story. So, I mean, as you kind of mentioned, it was always just part of you and maybe you were a natural at it. Some of it was learned along the way. So then how does LDK come about, which you've been doing for about six and a half years now? What was the impetus there? And, And tell the story. Yeah. So I went, did sales, moved over to sales support, which is now sales enablement, moved to a company called Salvo Group. And that was one of the original sales enablement platforms. It got bought by Seismic a few years back, but I started there and I had a great job. It was a sales enablement solution consultant. So I was going to be able to help companies who purchased the software figure out how to get the most out of it. Some, it's probably just pre-customer success, you could say today. But I was able to help them set it up, help them figure out what they were going to do with it, help them um, look at their sales motion and you know, define where they need the content, all those things. And that was a dream job for me. I didn't have a dream boss though. That my boss was annoying as hell in general. But I mean, I'm pretty flexible. I can take that kind of thing. But got me was, as you can tell when you read my uh, intro there, I'm all about not putting anybody in a box and not templatizing people. This guy had a 70 page template that he'd put together 60, 70 pages that he thought every interaction with customers as a consultant had to get put into that. And that's not how I roll. I mean, I don't go in there and start doing consultant speak. I go in there and really try to build the relationships and understand my customers. I had this one customer who I adored and I was working close with them. I got along with them. I was you know, just going above and beyond to help them. And they'd actually written a letter to one of the C-levels about me. It was awesome. And it came time to do a deliverable. Well, I knew what I wanted for the deliverable and it wasn't 70 slides, right? I had, a, you know, I would take a subset of them and then I had some additional things that I wanted to do. He flipped. It's like, you cannot do that. You have to use this slide deck. I'm like, dude, if I use this slide deck right now, they're going to be like, who are you? And what did you do with Anita? And can you send her back, please? Because they know that this would never come from me because it was overly complex. It was very much to make himself feel like he was brilliant. Hmm. And, and the customers, I would be on calls when he was doing that, he was presenting it. And I would talk to those customers later and they'd be like, I understand a thing he said, right? Because they felt comfortable telling me that, and, but they wouldn't say that to him, of course. So that's why I decided I'm done. Never, ever, ever did not have a job since I was 15. And I did not have a job in hand. I wasn't a promotion. Those are the only ways that I would ever leave a job in the past. So I was mortified, but I knew that it would crush my soul if I would have stayed there. And it literally came down to, I wasn't going to present to that customer. It was a big company, med medical devices. And I'm like, I'm not doing it. And so I quit right before it. And it was funny because then the customer came back and was like, maybe we can hire you as a consultant. No compete, non-compete. But it was, I mean, that just speaks to the level of relationship. And um, they gave hell to the company that I left for a while. You know, they just like, we don't want this workshop done by you to my boss. So it got a little bit annoying, but the thing that came out of it was started looking for jobs. And I had to say, is this what you want to do? You're like 35 years old. You're about to be 40. Is this what you want to do? Do you want to go into a job? Or sometimes you think about going out and starting something on your own, but you ch- I'm chicken shit. So I don't do that often. You know, I would never really go dig into it. I said, now or never. And so I just took the leap and um, came to find out that people that I'd worked with in the past found out that I was going out on my own, like sales leaders and such. And they reached out to me before I even had a website, before I even was doing any advertising, I was already working. And so that just kind of reinforced in my head everything that I stand for and that I made the right choice. Because if you truly, genuinely care about your customer, not just that role or the company, but that human, they will be your customer for life, regardless of kind of where you go. So it was a big lesson learned, but I won't lie. I mean, I was depressed probably for a good two months in there. I was like moping around, just I don't know what to do with myself. My identity is tied to my career. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's kind of how it went down. And I've never looked back and I've loved it all since then. I have been there myself with the yep. Yep. tanking of my first company and you're, I, you, you feel you like know. everyone only identifies you for that thing. And then you realize they actually liked you as a person. <laughs> That's right. I know. I think when you come to that realization, I mean, it does something just in terms of how you perceive yourself. And I feel like for me at that point, it helped me with my confidence, just knowing that I was able to go start out on my own. And I didn't have to suffer and you know, starve for a year, two years while I built up my business. I had customers right away. I mean, knock on wood, I was blessed. And since then, 100% referral business up until two weeks ago when I got my first client that I actually got because I started prospecting, (laughs) um, you know, which I've never had to do before. So yeah, you can create customers for life. You just have to build that type of relationship. And I've been lucky that way. 
Let's use that as our platform to talk about our main topic today, which is the yes. 400 level discovery questions. Now you've got experience doing this yourself. You've got experience training teams on this as well. Let's just start with the definition of what we mean by 400 yeah. level. Yeah. So I'll compare it to 100 level. So when you are, the minute you start selling, one of the first trainings onboarding you're going to do, they're going to say, you have to ask open-ended questions in your discovery. Like any sales company that would sales teams worth their salt is going to teach you that. And so 100 level questions are the basic open-ended questions. Like, you know, how many people are in your company or where are your offices? So the fundamental ones that aren't going to get you just a yes or no answer, but they're going to get you some sort of a fact or something limited or, you know, a short answer, for example. And uh, that's the 100 level. Then you look at the 400 level which is, it's almost like an art, right? And at that point, what you're doing is you're asking questions that leave the door wide open to let that customer go whichever way that they want to go. And in that, you get to hear things that are much more valuable, particularly emotion is allowed to seep in when you ask the 400 level questions because you are, I mean, there's open-ended and there's like gaping open-ended, right? And then these questions are like that. And I only half joke about it when I say these are questions a shrink would be jealous of right? Because you want to get in their head. That's what we're doing. And the minute that we can do that, it's just, you know, additional empathy. Then we can figure out how not only we solve their problem, but how we make them realize that we're helping solve their problem in the most effective way. So yeah, those are the big questions that get you the big payload of answers and information. Okay. So let's break this down a little bit by type, I guess. So these entry level questions, let's call them your hundred level, or perhaps, I don't know, maybe even like prerequisites. What are some examples of these kinds of questions that a entrepreneur or a sales rep might be asking to a potential customer on that first or second meeting? Yeah. I think it's kind of like the ones I said, you know, so you know, how long have you been with the company or the basics, right? So where's your company located? How many people does your company have? What's the mission? What's the vision? I mean, now all those things are on the website. So if you're asking those, you're in trouble anyway. But those are the types of questions. So it's very straightforward, pretty much factual. So the answer that you're going to get is fact. Yeah, it's right? Googleable, um, right? It's Googleable, exactly. Or I mean, even if it's not Googleable, it's something that can quickly be answered. It's not something that requires thought. Um, you know, it's just something that they would be able to answer. Like, uh, you know, tell me this about your product. Like, no, not tell me what's your product or how do your customers interact with your product? So things like that, um, that are very straightforward. Those are the hundred level. And the one the example I like to give between a 100 and 400, I've got a couple. Um, the first one is one of the 100 questions would be who reports to you, right? You, you talk to someone and for me, it's a lot of times it's IT leaders that I, that my customers work with. And they'll tell you, and they're going to tell you, okay, well, I have three app dev people. I have a hardware person. I have, and that's awesome. You totally need that information. You jot it down and you've got it. And so there you go. Thank you. You did a great job with the 100 level question. I mean, you better have done that, right? But the 400 level question, I'm just transitioning to it is, yeah. you know, tell me about your org structure or what does your org structure look like? Now, what you've done with that question is you haven't asked them who reports to them. You've asked them generally org structure. It's fascinating to see where people go with that, right? So they could either go with who reports to them, but then they'll talk a little bit more about how it's set up. Or, um, and this is where I learned this example, it was real life. I asked the salesperson by sneaky text to ask that question and they asked it. And basically the customer came back and said, well, you know what? Um, I've got three people that are my peers and the CIO is new and he brought this woman with him from his previous company. And you know, so they already have a built-in relationship and uh, I barely know him. I haven't met him. I've only met him a couple of times. Okay, pause. He went on and on a bit of time with all that information. You've just learned a ton about that customer, their emotional state. I already know right now that he's kind of insecure, has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder about this person that already has that relationship with the CIO. That's the first thing that he went to, which is interesting because it tells you that more concerned than the people that report to him as a leader, he was concerned about the people that are horizontal that like report with him. So those are the types of things that give you more insight than just knowing who reported to him. Alternatively, you could have said, who do you report to? And he would have told you the person he reported to, right? Or he would have said the CIO. The way I asked it there, it opened it up wide up. And he was able to put that emotion in. Now, is that going to happen every time? Probably not. But you'll find when you ask those questions, you give yourself a much better edge to get to that type of detail, which ultimately is going to help you with your value proposition. So for that same customer, if I were to go back and start to position things with them, I would say, hey, listen, if you do this, 
I can help you find XYZ examples, or I can help you with this slide so that when you go to your CIO, you'll be able to show them that this is valuable because of XYZ. Now they know that you're trying to help them look better. You knew that that's something that would be valuable to them. Mm -hmm. The only reason you knew that is because you asked that question in that way. So that's what I mean. Yeah, so it kind of sounds like it's the types of questions that require the other person to tell a story or paint a picture of some kind. Right, right. Tell a story, paint a picture, um, share emotions. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it boils down to. Is they're not going to come out and say, oh, I feel stressed or I have a chip on my shoulder. It's not happening. But they will say things that will then, as an astute sales professional, you'll be able to take a step back and say, this is what is on this person's mind. Based on the way that he answered these questions, it kept going back to the fact that he's got to show value to that CIO. I know that that is the way that I'm going to differentiate in this scenario. So let's face it, it's harder. It's harder and harder to differentiate on product anymore. Of course. Right. And so where we have to differentiate is between the two humans in that interaction, the salesperson and the buyer. And these questions get you to it. Now, if we compare that to the hundred level question, which is yeah. the more like factual based question, quick response. I'll tell you from my own experience working with different companies and reviewing their calls, what I have noticed is questions like, what's your role there? Which is something that you should know going into the call or the, uh, you know, oh, where are you located? I mean, you should probably know that too if they have a LinkedIn profile. That's right. Now it's, you should. You know, it makes you look unprepared, but also right. it kind of sets the table in their mind for the, in the buyer's mind for what kind of conversation this is going to be. That's right. And if it's that kind of a conversation, it's almost not worth their time. It starts to become a situation where they almost don't want to be there. So they start to get curt even with the other kinds of questions you could be asking them, right? They feel interrogated. No one ever loved somebody when they were on a hot seat, right? Like you're asking <laughs> questions as if you were questioning a witness at that point. Especially yeah. my, one of the saddest things, and I, I wish I could say that this doesn't happen, but it does. You know, people will be trained in some training class and they walk away with this like little list of discovery questions and it'll be like taped into their notebook and they'll go in and they'll just start like going, asking, going down them. Do not think that your customer does not know that you are reading off a list of questions. Mm -hmm. I promise you, they know that either you've memorized them to shoot out those questions or yeah. you're looking at a list and it takes all of the almost sincerity and curiosity out of it. And these um, 400 level questions, those are for curious people. They're curious people have a much easier way of asking those. One of the examples um, I've been watching, I, was, I watch a lot of news lately and I listen and it, it totally caught me off guard. I was listening to a CNN person and they said, well, help us understand. I'm just like, oh my God, that's one of my major questions that I coach people to say. Must have been a Chris Como interview you were watching. I don't even, yeah, no, <laughs> no, not that one. It was, it was during the day, but they all do it. So then, then I started to hear it. I'm like, these people are all asking these monster questions because they want to get that person talking. And the same thing when you're doing a discovery conversation, it's more important that that customer is talking than it is that you're talking, right? That whole thing about you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. So in order to master this though, it's the questions, but you know, like in college, you've got to get to the 400 level and there's certain prerequisites that you have. Sure. You have to get one, two, and three, but the other prerequisite for this 400 is that you know how to do research and active listening. Right. So those three things together, strong questions, the research and the ability to listen actively, that is how you master discovery. And that's how you become someone who just they only deal in personalized value. You are a true purveyor of value that matters to that customer. If you can do those three things. Purveyor of values that yes. matter to that customer. Can you that expand on that more? Yeah. So, I mean, when I think about purveyor of value, it's somebody who understands it's almost like a doctor kind of in some ways where you listen very carefully and then you diagnose and then you figure out. What can I do to help this person, right? So it's basically going out there with your knowledge, your expertise, your experiences, and coming back with things that would matter to that customer because you've asked those questions. So if I'm talking to a customer, um, and one of the stories I tell in my book is there was a gentleman who was an IT leader, and one of my clients was selling to him. And, you know, he had a really good lunch meeting at one point. And, and the sales rep that I coached was so excited because the customer had told him that, he, you know, he was working on trying to get into an MBA school, which is kind of a personal rapport building kind of thing that came out. Well, the salesperson, you know, they got in their car on the way home and they're just like, okay, so what am I going to do? I'm going to go find out if there's a book about how best to apply. It was to Northwestern, how best to apply there. And I'm going to send it to him. Yeah, that's a good idea. And then he kept thinking and he kept thinking. And it's like, well, no, maybe there's a study. No. And all these things he's trying to find in his head, what is going to be valuable to this person on that level of what they just told me? Well, 
in this awesome situation, he remembered that one of the guys that he went to college with is actually a dean at a college. He had no idea who it was, and I call him Ed in the book. And so he called this guy up, and of course, you know, they're like, hey, good to hear from you, da, da, da. He was a dean at Northwestern. Huh. Like, I mean, and people will say, okay, that doesn't happen. You know what? Luck favors the thoughtful and the prepared, mm-hmm. right? And so sure enough, he set up the meeting with, the, with Ed and the customer, and the customer was like flabbergasted, like, whoa, thank you so much. I mean, that is something that matters to him, to his life, not to that buyer's journey, not to any of those things. That is to that person's life. You have told him that you care enough about him to do something of that level of genuine thought, then it's sincere, right? Like he wasn't doing it to get a sale. Now, to be fair, six weeks later, there's a monster deal on the table that he'd been trying to get over the, over the line for easily a year and a half done. Now, will the customer ever say, oh, I did that because he hooked me up with the dean? Never going to say that. But we all know why that time is when that deal happened. So it was at that moment. Yeah. And that, you know, something like that, you're never going to find in a manual, right? Like there's never going to be a, that's not going to be part of the five questions you must be asking everyone. That's right. So I'm glad you said that. I struggled so much. I was writing this book and you know, you go out there and you read sales books and they all have some sort of a methodology or they have like a a guide or all these things that you're supposed to follow, right? Which takes that thinking out of it. I can't allow for that. Like I, there was no way that that was going to happen. Now, what I wanted to do though, was say some stories, tell some stories, give some ideas and let the salesperson think about it. And I knew that if I could change how they thought, or influence how they thought, that they would go find amazing ways to go practice these principles. I don't need to spoon feed them to them because I'm disabling them. This is the thing that kills me. People will give these people discovery questions. Well, now you don't rely on your own brain to come up with them. Now you've got this list and you feel like you have to adhere to it. It's kind of like the example I give is right navigation systems. I've lived in Chicago my whole life. Went to school in the city. My sister did as well. We were driving home from the city one day and this fool is looking at her navigation. We end up on like the Skyway. We could probably get home from that school with our eyes closed. But yet looking at that stupid navigation, she turned off her brain and she was just following blindly that navigation. And that's kind of what we do to salespeople sometimes. And it's not fair because that makes them miss opportunities that really could matter for them. So it's just one of those things you have to teach them how to think. And it was tough because people expect like a blue sheet or a green sheet or a you know, yeah. discovery call plan and all this. And I, I have some stuff in general for that. Sure. It's their job to figure it out. If you want to be good at sales, you have to learn these things. Well, I think it's more about, can you give someone a framework to operate from as opposed to call it. write out the, they say this exact word in this exact way every single time. Right. Yeah. And you teach them how to think and kind of teach them why, right? Like, so one of the things I talk about a lot is you have to be able to sell on an emotional level. And that's usually what makes the decision happen, right? And I go into some psychology and some research behind that. And the thing is, you have to do it in a way where now they're going to remember that. And so I use things like stories and analogies. They don't have a script to go do this. But once they've read that book, they know based on the analogy that I gave them that they better address that piece of it. And that's what I was after. And um, I wrote the book. It was almost like I wrote it for the people that I kind of knew in my circle. I didn't think anybody else would read it, honestly. (laughs) And uh, because I was like, oh, this is something that I have to do for my people. Because I coach a lot of people. So I was like, this will help them. And then I'm not saying the same thing over and over again. It gives them something to refer to. But it really resonated with people. And I was surprised. And it continues to. And it's because salespeople like to know that they do get it and that they can get it and that they don't need to be told what to do. They need to be um, coached on how to think about themselves. And that's what you have to do. The book she's referencing, which I failed to mention in her introduction, is called Beat the Bots. And when we get to the end of the episode here, I'll give you a chance to talk where our listeners can find it. So continuing on this notion of of the idea of these advanced questions, these 400 level questions, what do you think it takes on the seller's side to transition from the surface level into the 400 level? Like it's one thing to say, hey, you need to ask deeper questions, but how does someone actually make that leap and what do they need to do to successfully move up let's say yeah so there's a couple of tried and true things that you can ask right you can add and change um tell me about help me understand which is one of my favorite right because as a salesperson when you go in and you say help me understand you're showing some level of vulnerability even if it's subconsciously and so now whatever wall that person had thinking that you're like a sales guy or sales gal that helps that starts to come down because you went in there humbly and said help me understand tell me about what's the impact on you know how will you do this so those are the types of questions now the only thing that it really takes you know once you get a feel for a few of these 
I mean, even if you use three or four of them in a discovery session, you're, you're going to mine gold because it's just, it, you'll, they'll talk and they'll keep on talking. And then you ask follow-ons. The thing you have to know is you have to be confident enough to know that when you ask these questions, they are going to answer. They're not going to look at you and reject you or not or refuse to answer it. You should leave if they do anyway. But these are questions that human beings are apt to answer because it really makes them think instead of just, you know, whatever rote they're used to telling salespeople. And then you have to have some, the ability to be a little bit vulnerable. You have to go in there from a place of, I know nothing and I need to learn as much as I can. It's almost like a game. I have to get the most I can from this meeting in terms of learning about them. And once you figure that out, you realize these questions are what are going to get you there. Not your little discovery list, not your average questions, but these are the ones that are going to get you there. So I think there's a confidence factor and similar to that, like the vulnerability factor. And then just knowing that your curiosity is your best friend, sincerity and curiosity in that process. Let me give you another example. I feel like your listeners will want to hear this. So one of the things that people ask is very common is, what are, tell me about the initiatives or what are the initiatives you're working on this year? Okay, great question, because you kind of want to know those, right? Depending, especially since you want to know how your product fits into those. So the customer will go ahead and give you a list of those initiatives. Instead, how about asking something like, so which initiative is the most challenging that you're working on this year? Now, are you going to get a list of seven initiatives? No, but you're going to find out about the one that matters most to them and why. And then you can ask follow-on questions. And then it's really easy to say, okay, well, what are some of the others? But you gave yourself a chance to ask that monster question and they're going to tell you why it's challenging and they're going to tell you how their team is struggling with it and how you, they fear that they're going to lose some of their employees because it's overwhelming. That's what you're after. That's the goal that you need because that's what will help you figure out what value looks like. And value doesn't matter what your company told you what value is. doesn't matter what the product marketing sheet told you it is, what the customer perceives value. That's the only thing that matters. And these questions get you to that answer. Let's explore this concept a little bit further, but before we do, I just want to take a quick break here and let our listeners know about our show's partner, which is Sales Hacker. If you're a longtime listener here, then you know all about Sales Hacker. Anita knows about Sales Hacker. And it is quite simply the B2B game-changing platform. What do I mean by that? Well, if you are a B2B startup or maybe you're a marketplace startup with a B2B side, Sales Hacker is the world's smartest community for forward-thinking professionals. So over 135,000 members strong, which means whether you're a CEO, a head of sales, or a sales rep, maybe you're the one asking these 400 level discovery questions, Uh Sales Hacker is going to help you get better at your job with things like podcasts, articles, webinars, and research from actual sales experts and practitioners, including myself. Anita has been featured on Sales Hacker in the past as well. It is a ton of just like straight dope to help you grow your sales acumen. I'm a big fan of Sales Hacker. More recently, they actually re- they did a whole community update where now you can create a member account there. They do weekly Ask Me Anythings with different leaders across sales and technology, which I think is amazing. It's just like being on a Reddit thread. You can also start your own discussion boards. Like recently, I saw someone ask, what's the best way to break the ice on LinkedIn? And then you have a whole community of people chiming in. So if you've got questions, Sales Hacker's got answers. And more importantly, the Sales Hacker community has answers. How do you get involved? It's simple, www.saleshacker.com. All you gotta do is enter your information there, just your email, really, that's what that means, and you can join the community for free to get access to the articles, the research, the podcasts, and more at www.saleshacker.com. Today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we are with Anita Nielsen, author of Beat the Bots and founder of LDK Advisory Services, talking about 400-level discovery Questions. Now, Anita, before the break there, you mentioned uh, some good question starters, which are tell me about, help me understand, what's the impact on, what's the biggest challenge regarding blank, or what's the most challenging blank. And these are all ways to be able to figure out how does your prospect perceive value? Because they'll tell you what's valuable to them in their responses. Now, I'm curious, why is it that when we have this conversation, and I'm sure when someone hears this, they're like, they maybe they're like, wow, I hadn't thought of it like that before. But now that I hear it, it sounds so obvious. Why do you think more people and more teams don't actually do this? And why do they stay stuck in that hundred level? Yeah, I love that question because it never ceases to amaze me. I could coach someone and they will give me all the right answers, all the questions that they're going to ask. But then when they're in the heat of the moment, somehow it just evaporates. If they'll ask one, I'll be thrilled. I think when you're a sales professional, there's so much writing on that meeting, right? And so when you're in it, 
it's very hard to remind yourself of all the little things that you need to add. You're not allowed to have a list, right? So it's a little bit more difficult. So I think it does take time and practice to do it. But I'll tell you what, I was training a class one time and I had a question. I had a, some sort of a scenario up there. And the idea was that you had to give me an example of a high impact question. I call them high impact of these 400 questions. The sales leader literally the SVP of sales. He, before he, anybody even raised their hand, he jumps up and chimes in and he, he asks a close-ended question. I literally just said, give me a high impact question. And it was his instinct. Salespeople, we are taught to be effective. We are taught to get through. We have to move the deal forward. We have to get something out of this. We have an end in mind. When you speed up like that, it's hard to remember whether you're asking these questions or not. So you really have to slow down, ask the question, then shut up and listen. And I think that's hard. That takes practice as sales professionals, especially the good ones and really high performers sometimes get frustrated, especially the ones that are in transactional sales. I mean, it's hard for them to stop and slow down because they have a list of things they know that they need to get and they knew they, they have to know before they can put that quote together. This changes things. Like it, it helps you learn so much more and find more opportunity, but it takes practice. Mm. And it's frustrating for the people that are genuinely great salespeople. So it takes time. I wonder if we're going to differ on this part here. Do you feel yeah. like there's any room for a closed-ended question? Well, absolutely. If you go in there and start asking back to back to back all these open-ended questions, they're going to think that you're trying to be a shrink. And that's not part of the game either, right? You'll develop instinct over time, but you use them strategically. You let them answer one question. And then as you're listening, you're like, okay, maybe I have to ask my follow-on questions are going to be closed-ended, right? Like I just talked about the initiative one. Okay, well, so what are the other initiatives, right? And they'll talk about it. And when is that initiative running from? You have to ask those closed-ended questions because you have to get the facts, just the facts, ma'am, right? That, you have to have that as well. But in between those facts, you have the big questions. You let the big questions drive what those little questions are. You don't, not the other way around. If you yeah. go in with um, 100 questions, you're never going to get the big stuff. If you go in with the big stuff, you can catch the smaller stuff later on. I think as well, it can work in the context of, let's say it's like a deeper thing you're trying to find out, but you, you can start with a yes or no response and then just follow that with, tell me more about that or say more. Yep. Or how does that work? Or can you yeah. describe that? Right. So exactly. You could do it either way. I and think I think to your point, like when you do it, like, especially in the way you just said, like, well, can you describe that? That is that it showcases that curiosity on display. And it's, it takes a level of humility to ask that question too. I mean, people, we still struggle with this negative perception of salespeople and that we go in and we're the smartest person in the room and we know everything and we're trying to take advantage or we're trying to sell them. When you ask something like that, it really does disarm and neutralize that mindset, right? Like you go in and say, well, can you describe that for me or help me understand? I mean, it's very hard to be a jerk as a customer when you're, someone is genuinely asking that question. Curiosity is attractive. People love, here's my thing. People love to talk about themselves. Love it. But what they love more than that is to feel really, really heard. Mm. So that's why it's a one-two punch. Ask the big question, let them talk, let them hear their own voice, get the information you need, but really, really listen. That's where trust and, and rapport start to grow from. One of the things that I have noticed on certain occasions when reviewing some client demo calls is the phrase I like to use is, you're so clearly banting this person. Like BA, the, the budget authority need yes, timeline, yes, right? Yes. Like it's like I can like hear the BANT coming out of your mouth. Now, yeah. and, and mm -hmm. for those who don't know, it is, BANT is an acronym that was created many years ago. I don't know by what person or organization, but it stood for like the four pieces of information you need to find out from your prospect are BANT, budget authority need and timeline. Now those are important things to find out. So what are better ways to be asking those questions besides what's your budget? Are you the decision maker? What's your pain? And when... Are you making a decision? Yeah. So you start off with something like, how do you determine which initiatives you invest in? Right. So you start with that. Let them talk a little bit and be like, well, so then is there a set budget for that? Right. So you build mm -hmm. into it. But people know when they're being banted 100%. You are so right. I'm going to steal that line because that's exactly <laughs> how I feel. So that's one of the things. And then for timing is be like, what's the level of urgency around this? Right. And, you know, people would say that's not a great question because they're never going to tell you. Yeah, they'll tell you. If you've asked those questions and you've built some level of trust, they're going to tell you that if I don't get this done, I'm not going to make my bonus because you've already set the pattern that they're sharing with you and you're being respectful of what they're sharing. But you can't go in there and start with bant right off the bat. You've got to build and you've got to ask things differently. So, you know, timing, 
you know, you could ask something like, well, so what if that doesn't get done this year? Right. So things like that, yeah. you have to just, it takes practice, but you can get really darn good at this. Sometimes I struggle now because I'll be talking to someone like you and I'll be giving an example of a closed ending questions and I can't, it doesn't come out right. It comes out <laughs> as a 400 level. And I think I did it a couple times before because I'm just so used to it. So after over time, you get used to it and uh, it makes the customer feel like you genuinely want to hear what they have to say, that you're not trying to sell them. And it doesn't make them think that they're working through some methodology you have. And don't think customers don't know. One of the things that drives me bananas, and this is a, otherwise would be considered a 400 level question, the whole, what keeps you up at night? Somebody, some trading company came up with that years ago and thought that is the best question, which I'm not going to lie. That's a pretty decent question. But when you train 6 million people on that question, and now you ask customers that, those customers have heard it before. Yeah. They, you will look a fool and they will say something. I've had this happen with um, my clients. You know, they'll ask that question. I'll say, well, my six month old right now. Yeah. And just shut it up. Literally, right? like, when you said it just now, I was like, well, I'm losing my hair. <laughs> there you go. Right. Exactly. And that's what, you know, and, and you'll get a snarky. You ask a question like that that's clearly made to sell, you're going to get a snarky ass answer back. So, yeah. Here are a couple ways I do it, and I'd love to get your take uh, yeah. on some of these uh, aspects. Mm -hmm. So, like, as it relates to timeline, I often hear uh, teams will be like, They'll ask the, oh, okay, so in an ideal world, when would you like to launch this? And I'm like, that's fine, but we don't live in an ideal world. So if I ever ask that, and what I'll tell them is, well, after they respond, follow up with, okay, well, let's be real. We don't live in an ideal world. Uh, Labor Day or Thanksgiving is coming up. You know, you might be taking a few days off. Perfect. What obstacles are actually getting in the way that are going to prevent that from happening? Yep. yep. And then they start to get more like real with you. Another one would be to figure out like decision makers yeah. is who's going to feel left out if they don't get eyes on this. Love it. Love it. Yep. Yes. I mean, and that, oh. and so those are great. Those are great case points of 400 level questions. Now for me, I came up with those over time from practice, right? right. Now, and obviously like getting reps, getting repetitions is, is important here. Is there any sort of like exercise though a person could do? Like, like, is it like write down one question and write down five other ways to ask that same question? Do you have any of those kinds of things that people can do to like accelerate that? Yeah, one curve? of the things I do that kind of snarky a little bit, but and I won't name names, but what I'll usually say is, okay, whatever your sales methodology was till today, go pull up that discovery questions list and go redo it and then come back and let's talk about it. Almost every time they come back with some really good, and then it's like this eureka moment, like, I could have been asking them that way. And here's the thing. Some people naturally would have asked them that way if they weren't following this silly list. So that's one thing that I say. But the other thing I say is just go through your day, right? Pick a, a four hours time slot where your focus is going to be, I'm only going to ask these open-ended questions, right? And it doesn't have to be just for the prospect. I do this with my children. They're in high school. And trying to get anything out of these people about how school went or this and that, it's like it takes an act of God. And so I'm constantly trying to think of ways to say things to get things out of them, right? I'll say something like, well, wait, what did so-and-so your friend say today, right, about something? And that'll get them talking because they're happy to talk about their friend. Just don't ask them about the math test, right? <laughs> but I'll get to that point. But you have to practice. You just have to tell yourself to freaking practice. Just do it. Yeah. Put a post-it on your screen. Put one of the guys that I coached, I love him. He'd put it, he had this, um, I have an analogy about um, rational, emotional questions and how, how you're supposed to ask them. And he had a little post-it note in his car. And he was looking at that before he went into every customer meeting. And that's another oh, thing nice. I say. Yeah, and so he's looking at it. So what, the one thing I say is if you can do nothing else that I've taught, do this. Ask yourself before you get out of that car, how does my customer need to feel at the end of this conversation? I can promise you, once you have that answer in your head, you're not going to get them to that feeling by asking 100 level questions. Mm -hmm. The only way you're going to get there, learning what that feeling is and similar like value is by asking the open-ended questions. That's kind of like a challenge. You challenge yourself to do that. I got one more question here before we begin our wrap up. Yeah. If you could only ask a prospect, like you were given one question and then you couldn't ask any more, maybe at best you could ask a couple follow-ups to that one question. What is that one question you're choosing if, I don't know, someone's like, hey, I got a gun to your head. It's a weird scenario, but I got a gun to your head and you have to ask this person something. <laughs> so that is my scenario, by the way. The one that I told okay. you before about the SVP, I have a picture of a witness and an artist, like a sketch artist. Yeah. And the question is, okay, the, the witness is totally frazzled and she's anxious and she has to get out of here. 
the sketch artist can only ask one question and he's got an example of the picture and he's holding it up. He can only ask her one question. Everybody says, ask the question, is this right? Well, what if she says no, clowns? If she says uh, no, uh, you got no more questions. <laughs> right answer is, what do I need to change? Right, or something like that. And so for me, if I had the one question, because that'll get you more information so you can actually do something about it. If yeah. I get it wrong and I can't ask anything else. So that's the scenario that the VP got up and said, did I get this right? Face palm, huh. legit. So my <laughs> question that I would ask would be something like, help me understand your plight right now. Interesting. And it, it all just comes out because they can go anywhere with it. And so that's a function of what matters to them. It's a function of where their head is at in that moment or the context that they're in. And then you just go, you just let them go. Listeners, you were just given gold there. You can start your conversations <laughs> with that question. Help me understand your plight right now. All right. So Anita, where can our listeners find you and learn more? Tell us more about your awesome book and, and where you're available. Yeah, so I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. And so you can find me, Anita Nielsen, author, and this bright red shirt person will pop up. And, and I love to make connections with sales, especially salespeople that are out there, you know, living this day in, day out. They're my people. And then also my website is www.ldkadvisory.com. And I'm getting more in the habit of posting on Twitter, and that's A. Nielsen LDK. But really, if you want to get me, if you want to hear the things I'm saying, it's on Twitter. And the book is, of course, on Amazon. The book is called Beat the Bots. Can you just give a quick synopsis of it? Yeah, it's a book about how if you want to not be replaced by a robot someday, you have to be doing things that robots can't do, which involve emotion, like we've been talking about, which involve understanding your customer and uh, doing it at a human-to-human level. Otherwise, transactional things, rote things, robots are going to get them. It is available on Amazon, as she said, and it is a number one bestseller on Amazon. So definitely pick that up. We'll drop a link for it in the show notes on startuphypeman.com. All right. So to wrap up, we'll each give our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listening audience from our discussion today. Our topic was 400 level discovery questions. I'll go first, then I'll kick it to you. To me, uh, the biggest takeaway here is to ask questions that force the other person to tell stories to you, to have imagery behind them, questions that get them to, as you say, Anita, generate some type of an emotional response. And one piece of advice I'll give, I don't know why more people don't take advantage of this. I've been doing it for almost two years now and it works really well. If someone books a meeting through your meeting scheduling software, whether it's Calendly or Mixmax or the whatever other softwares there are that do this, if you book a meeting with me and it's for a sales purpose, my, I have survey questions on there to answer before we have that meeting okay. while you're picking a time. And for me, the questions I want to know that help me get some factual information out of the way, as well as start on the 400 level journey, is uh, how much money have you raised to date? What's your company's MRR? How many people are on your team? And then, and those are the like factual questions that actually qualify or disqualify up front for me. So pick whatever it needs to be for your case. And then the last question is, what's the number one challenge you have related to pitching or telling your company's story? Is that for investors or customers or both? And what I have found is that roughly 70% of the people will fill out that response. Right. The 70% who do, have just tipped their hand that they are willing to have a conversation. The 30% who don't are indicating you're going to have to work way harder to get some information out of me. And the, that 70% who does answer, guess what my starting point is in the conversation after we get past the pleasantries? I say, hey, you wrote down this. Tell me more. <laughs> Help me understand. Yeah. <laughs> right? So there you go. I love it. Anita, top one or two lessons or takeaways. Well, so I think the one at the end was probably a really good one, the way that you told them about gold. So go in there and ask, you know, help me understand your plight right now. I think that's a huge one. And that just kind of sets the stage for having that kind of ebb and flow of these big questions and little questions. Emotions will seep in and that's really important. The other thing is don't ignore, don't overlook the emotional aspect of it. So back to that thing about sitting in the car and, you know, asking yourself, what does my customer need to feel by the end of this? Look, information they probably can get on the internet right? They can get, ask you questions and get information, but that emotion is what's going to drive the buying decision. If you don't try to work with that, you're leaving money on the table essentially. And you're going to let competition who knows how to do it, get in there. So I think that's important. And then the third thing is practice, right? Like 
don't expect to wake up tomorrow and be able to do this. You probably won't. You need to practice. You need to force yourself to practice. And then you have to remind yourself, don't be silly and think that you're going to go into a meeting and ask 20 different of these questions. You're not. Ask yourself, today, I'm going to start with that flight question. And then by the end, I'm going to ask X question. And then here's what's going to happen. You're going to see how all these work. And then you're just going to be like, I ask these all the time. So take the baby steps and you'll find that there's so much value in it for you that it'll not need to practice so much. It'll come to you and it'll become more intuitive. So emotions uh, get in their head and value is in the eye of the customer. Erase in your mind whatever you think is valuable to that customer when you walk in there. You have no idea. You got to figure it out. Final question, which is how we end every episode here on Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Fill in the blank, Anita. Entrepreneurship is blank. Fulfillment. Say more. It's being able to own your own destiny, own your plight, and make a difference in a way that helps you realize why you're on this planet. So I hate to get very zen on you, but to me, it is fulfillment. It's actually now I'm doing things that no one else is making me do. And I'm doing it in a way that I know will serve my customers best. And so I'm finally in a place where I can say that. Very nice. Entrepreneurship is fulfillment. She is Anita Nielsen, author and entrepreneur. Anita, thank you for joining today on Startup Hype Man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.